I can't I can't talk in miles per hour. Sorry. So I I did convert the seventy miles <laughs> oh, per hour. Kilometers, 30, Thirty-one meters like 30. per second. No, meter, yeah. meters per second. Meters if you're an engineer, second. then a wind speed is measured <laughs> in meters Fine. per second. Fine. Yeah. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about a bunch about Ukraine and Russia. Obviously, this is uh, what's enveloping the news cycle in the world. So we'll chat about that and all the energy implications today. Before we get going into that, we'll talk a little bit about some um, wind turbine destruction, some permitting issues in Europe. We'll talk about some fixed bottom offshore wind farms, and we'll talk about some new ship construction that is uh, going to be compliant with the Jones Act here in the U.S. Before we do all that, be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter and updates about the podcast, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, where she's reporting on everything renewable and wind energy. So first thing here, uh, Alan, there was a wind turbine destroyed in Cumbria as a it's a victim of this big storm, Dudley. Um, you know, we've talked about the still somewhat unproven because the hurricane hasn't smashed through an offshore wind farm yet. Uh, but you know, this was a pretty powerful storm, gusts of up to 70 mile per hour and knock some blades off, uh, knock some turbines to the ground. I mean, I guess my big question is why did this storm seem so destructive? I mean, isn't this kind of typical? Like 70 mile per hour wind gusts aren't that high, are they? No, they're not, not in a, not in a hurricane situation or tropical storm situation. And, uh, I was doing a little research in some of the wind turbines that got knocked down in those storms. And it, it looked like the wind turbines were like one-off kind of wind turbines or maybe had a maintenance issue. And I think that's going to be a, a bigger issue in the United States as going forward. Because, Dan, you know, in, in the United States, there's local school districts have a wind turbine or maybe the local um, sewer department has a wind turbine. And those one-off wind turbines, as they get older, are really hard to maintain unless you're really on top of it. Uh, you may have a, a structural issue inside the turbine, not know it until the winds are 70 miles an hour. That's, that's I think, the bigger issue. You know, we had a wind turbine near us in Massachusetts at one of the ski resorts lose a blade a couple of weeks ago. Again, it was about a wind turbine. I think it was like 13 years old. So it's kind of getting its second half of life. And, you know, how well are the, are the blades maintained if it's a one-off turbine? Probably not as well as uh, larger owner operators are going to maintain their wind turbine. So um, I'm not surprised that a wind turbine got damaged. What I am a little more concerned about is as we start expanding and growing into more wind in the United States, so those solo wind turbines are going to have trouble uh, just because of the expense of maintaining a wind turbine. It's like owning a, a very expensive like car, like a Ferrari. Right? For the first couple of years, probably not going to put a lot of money into it maintenance-wise, and then it's going to get super expensive. And it's a question of if you're going to put the money back into it or not to keep it alive. And Rosemary, you know, some of these uh, issues with the high, high winds have to do with blade fatigue or structural issues. I, I still don't understand how we're going to be able to handle hurricanes, 
tropical storms, <laughs> typhoons, so, you know, all, all the, the crazy winds and particularly the water gets sloshed around in some of these storms. Is there really a way to know if we can make these wind turbines work without putting some up and just finding out? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's so, so different. The, the aerodynamic loads of, uh, you know, a blade in, um, I can't, I can't talk in miles per hour. Sorry. So I, I did convert the 70 miles <laughs> oh, per hour. Kilometers, 30, everyone. 31 meters like per 30. second. No, meet, yeah. meters per second. Meters if you're an engineer, second. then a wind speed is measured <laughs> Fine. in meters Fine. per second. Fine. And if you, if you look at the IEC wind classes, um, cause yeah, there are standards about how wind turbines need to be designed. They don't just like stick it up and hope that it, <laughs> it lasts uh, for whatever nature throws at it. So there's, there's different wind classes as like high wind speed class one, um, medium and low. And then it's now class four, which I guess you'd call very low. And even in the very low wind speed class, the, the lowest, the, um, the maximum extreme load that blades have to, um, withstand. It's the 50 year extreme gust wind speed. And if you look at the table, then even the very lowest wind class, that's 42 meters per second. So, you know, like a third higher than what, um, wind, what wind speed caused the failure in this case. So it's not a matter of the blade not being designed or the tower or any part of the wind turbine not being designed to withstand that. There's definitely a failure happened. And yeah, I, I mean, it's pretty well understood how the loads change with changing wind speed. So I think that the existing testing method should be able to um, accommodate a, a higher design wind speed or, you know, to withstand a higher extreme gust. They'll do the same kind of testing, but just, you know, put more, more force. They, it's really cool actually to see how wind turbine blades are, are tested. Um, and one of the ones they do for the extreme load is that they will mount a blade just in a, a test rig. So it's, you know, attached at the blade root. And then they'll just get a bunch of ropes and attach it along the blade and just pull on it, you know. <laughs> and, they, um, and if you ever, I, I've never been physically in the room for one, but every now and then the manufacturers will just keep pulling till it breaks just to, you know, check that their models are, are, are right. They're not being too cautious. Um, you don't do it often because uh, a test blade is expensive to make. Um, yeah. And I mean, so if you want to design a blade to withstand a higher wind speed, you would just test it by by pulling harder on it. So I don't see that as a problem. I see the real problem with um, putting blades and oh, wind turbines in more and more extreme environments is just that you need to make the every component stronger in that case. And if it's just to withstand storms, um, then you've got a very expensive wind turbine now that's really overbuilt for average conditions so that, you know, every 20, 30 years when a, a hurricane or whatever other kind of severe storm when that comes through, it will withstand it. And so it's just not, the economics aren't as good as somewhere that doesn't have those extreme weather conditions. So Rosemary, you mentioned that the engineers designed the wind turbine blades to handle those loads. I totally agree with you. Let's talk about two separate issues here though. First is the manufacturing quality of that particular blade. And, and may that particular blade is made in three or four different factories around the world. How consistent is the manufacturing of those blades? And second off, when you do that ultimate load test, you're only testing one blade to qualify it. It isn't like you're going through and testing multiple blades. Is How much variation is there structurally within a blade? And if you're making a thousand or five thousand blades, how much variation is there? Yeah, so I mean, it is true that you'll usually only test one blade physically, but it's not quite true that um, 
own they're only looking at one because they are also looking at your design methods and um so that will include a bunch of other kind of tests that the wind turbine manufacturer has a history you know because blades look effectively the same as they did you know 20 years ago in for the most part with some changes um but they know how strong their fiberglass is, <laughs> you know, like they really know um, from starting from from coupon tests, small small pieces that they test on, um, you know, in 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 the lab, um, then right up to the thousands and thousands of blades that they have put up out in the field with those same materials, uh, similar structure but not exactly the same. Um, so all of that sort of thing is audited and there are safety factors that are added to account for uncertainties. So the, you know, the longer your history, the, the better your testing and your design methods and your quality processes are, then the less of a safety factor you'll have to add. So, you know, if, um, it, it should, it should cover everything, <laughs> but you are right that you know, the quality isn't exactly the same on every single blade. I mean, every blade that comes out of a wind turbine factory, um, it, it needs repairs done. You don't, you don't ever get a blade that comes out and it's just right. You know, you're sure. always doing some repairs. They're, you know, using ultrasound scanning on some parts of the blade and visual inspections on others. Um, plus, you know, like that you try and do the exact same process every time. So. Yeah, it is a it's a manual and variable process, and so things do slip through the cracks. Um, and yeah, that's why you do still see failures. Is there a standard safety margin that's applied to blades on blade structure? Is it a two x or one hundred fifty percent? Is there is there an industry standard on when you pull this pull this blade, it must withstand double its design intent? Are those are those things in place or is depend? Okay. It, it depends exactly what you're talking about because it's not the same safety factor for every every load and um you know every every single thing, um but it's not it's not double it's like one point three five would be uh, a pretty normal, um yeah pretty normal load factor. So that that safety margin is actually derived from the manufacturing variability at times and and what you could see worst case in the field. I think a lot of times on like in the aviation community, the safety factors are based upon sort of manufacturing history. And how well you can reasonably put things together. It may not be written down that way, but that's that's my impression. Okay, but in the winterman side, you hear more about uh, compression of margins, safety margins, because of the of the history they have with blades. Does that part does that go into the cycle as we go from like a fifty meter blade to a hundred and twenty meter blade? Does the does a does what happens with the fifty meter blade even make any difference of what happens with a one hundred and twenty meter blade? It doesn't sound like they're, they're kind of not the same animal. Uh, and do you apply the same safety factors? That's um, a relevant. <laughs> that's definitely relevant to wind turbine blade design at the moment. That you know, for um, you know, from the '90s to the 2010s, blades basically did look exactly the same. It was the same structure, and it just you know, like stretched a little bit every every year, um, and they were nearly exactly the same. And you, you had very very high certainty about how your blade was <laughs> going to behave. You know, because sure. a, a 40 meter blade behaves basically the same as a 43 meter blade with the exact same geometry basically only stretched um and now we've gotten longer um still and to the point where because composite materials are you know there's like multiple um scales in there you you've got you know a blade that might be 100 meters long but then you've got these um you know the, the individual fibers inside the resin then that's a 
you know, much less than a millimeter scale that's relevant there. And so you don't see everything just scaling up uh, as you might expect if you're mm. working with metals, for example. Right. Um, yeah. And then the bigger difference is some of the changes that have happened. So, um, Adding carbon fiber would be an example of one. Um, if we're moving to thermoplastic blades, like some manufacturers are trying to, that will obviously behave very differently um, and fail very differently sure. than the blades they had before. Sure. Um, and as you're well aware of, the lightning protection systems are, are very, very different. Yes. Um, and then even you know the structural impact of that can can have an effect if you've got a very different kind of lightning protection system then the way that interacts with the blade structure might also cause some changes so those are the places where you do tend to see more problems with yeah just using past experience to um yeah to predict the future it just seems like we've run into some more recent blade failures that are odd and as we get to these longer and longer blades, particularly offshore, I wonder if we actually know what the failure modes would be. And it sounds like because they're getting so big, the twisting can be an issue. Uh, some of the flexing modes are different than what we probably have experienced before. So maybe our, our, our models aren't even as established. And, you know, structures, structural engineers are really brilliant people way outside my my level of thinking. Oh, we're amazing. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? But it, it does seem like we're going so fast it's like this Elon Musk problem with SpaceX, right? You're going so fast, you're going to make mistakes. And if uh, these mistakes, although are powering <laughs> a large city, that's a problem. If, if Musk blows up a, a rocket, it doesn't really affect anybody too much. But on the electricity grid, it, it does make a difference. And I'm just wondering how we're going to address some of those issues, because I think the wind industry is about to explode. And, and uh, with all the things that are happening in the Ukraine, and, and the U.S. policy, I just like all, all of a sudden there's going to be so much pressure on the industry to just massively build wind turbines. Are we ready for that? I mean, I think that I, I think all that is true. And then, you know, offshore, there's a very different operating environment than there yeah. is onshore as well. So um, manufacturers that are new to offshore will likely see some some problems. Um you know, maybe they're just teething problems. But for me, the biggest thing that I'm worried about is the fact that there's, you know, this um, like immense downward pressure on prices at the moment. Um, a lot of manufacturers <laughs> have, you know, they're really trying to compete on, on price yeah. and price alone practically. Um, and, you know, some of the manufacturers have tried really hard to in increase their market share, which has squeezed, uh, <laughs> squeezed profit margins for everybody that's playing that game. And, I think if you look back at the the history of all the major manufacturers, most of them have gone through some period where you know the the quality gradually declined um, because of you know because they weren't putting the, the the emphasis on it, assigning the the budget to keeping quality high and you know allowing long enough development times to iron out the kinks before whole wind farms are installed with a new technology. And it takes a while. There's a lag, you know, between making that decision in engineering, in your engineering budget before you start to see the impact on your, your claims budget. Um, and so I am kind of expecting within the next few years to start seeing some manufacturers realize that they've got a huge quality problem that, you know, started several years ago. Sure. I think we'll see bankruptcies. That's my, that's Ooh. my bold prediction. Or we'll see governments that, you know, give some support to their 
the companies from you know in their in their country to continue because I don't see that. I mean, you can say, yeah, okay, we're, we're price price sensitive. It's become you know wind turbines <laughs> become a bit like a, a commodity, but mm-hmm. um, it's just it's not. It's it's a incredibly large, complicated, high-tech piece of equipment and it's just simply not something that you can compete on price alone, but that's where we really have been for the last few years. So, yeah, I um, I think that that's the solution is that someone will go bankrupt and the, uh, the survivors will spend more money on, on you know, increasing development timeframes and, <laughs> and spending more money on quality again. That's how I expect it to play out. Well, Dan, you know, with the that's Rosemary raised some really good points. I I, I disagree. I don't think we're going to have a see a bankruptcy, <laughs> and I'll explain why. Uh, Dan, you, you had what's what's going on? Was it Vestas in the Ukraine and Russia? Are they pulling out of Russia at the moment? What's what's the latest news story there? Uh, Vestas is going to freeze new commercial activity. So, you know, I'm not sure if they're pulling out. I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, they have a blade production facility um, in Russia and a nacelle assembly line. So they have a lot of turbine orders that are going to go through that, I suppose. And they're going to try to, to, I guess, wind all that down, at least for the time being. So are they going to basically stop production in, in Russia? That's what it sounds like? Wow. Okay. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's exactly, uh, you know, I think a lot of things are still unclear mm-hmm. at this point, but that's what it sounds like they want to do. They're going to, they don't want any more, any new business. Wow. Okay. So if, if Vestas is making that play, you, you have to think the the GEs and the Siemens Gamesa are going to have to follow suit. I think that's probably in their best interest to do that. Uh, this European Union, Ukraine, Russia situation is really becoming more intense than I thought it was going to be even. And I was uh, predicting it was going to get really ugly. And we got into the really ugly stage and probably beyond what I was thinking. Uh, the wind turbine industry, because Rosemary, you're right, you're 100% right. The, Rose, the wind turbine industry is in a financial difficulty uh, place because of supply chain issues, inflation, prices being pushed down. Uh, but right now, there's a unique little window of opportunity, right? It's like the Overton window of the situation, which is the European Union and the United States have been saying the words the last couple of days that they want to push renewable energy to provide electricity to the United States and wherever else where they can do it and stop using Russian oil. That's, that's a sort of the second half of this, right? They're going to stop using Russian oil. Europe will have a little more difficult time doing that than the United States will. But if we, what are you going to replace the oil with? And the electricity generated via oil on some level. Uh, I think you're going to have to go to renewables. And there's going to be a big push in renewables when you have governments standing up like that in the UK, the United States, saying we need to go renewables. What that generally means is they're going to write several hundred billion dollars of tax incentives or grants or gifts of cash to go out and get these wind turbines built. And these solar farms built. And if I'm Vestas, GE, Siemens, Gamesa, Nordex, pick one, and I realize that I am really close to making hundreds of millions of dollars from these government grants, I may start tearing up contracts I have on existing wind farms and saying we're going to renegotiate. That's possible. 
because they're in a GE's in a position right now where they can go to the United States government and say, hey, you're pushing for a renewable future. We are your renewable future. We're in the United States. If you can help us make some money, we'd love to stay in the United States and make wind turbines for you. And I have a hard time believing the Biden administration is going to walk away from that. For as much money that's been thrown in, out into the economy, trillions of dollars at a time, writing a $200 billion check to the industry would not be off the table, in my opinion. And I, that's why I don't think any of these companies are going to go bankrupt. I think they, they may roll, accidentally roll into a situation where they, they may be extremely profitable. And Rosemary, you see how that could play out to their benefit, this crazy Ukraine Russia situation, which is horrible, may have a very positive effect on renewable energy. Wouldn't have guessed it six weeks ago. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I I agree. If they get some support, and it, it does sound like people, uh, at least some people, are leaning towards you know a faster rollout of renewables yes. in order to decrease um, you know dependence on foreign fossil fuels. I do see also a lot of people talking about shoring up um, you know domestic fossil fuel sources. So yes. I don't think it'll be you know. It's not guaranteed that it's going to be good for their energy transition, um, but definitely it's going to cost more because, you know, we've already got supply chain problems. I, I know that in war times people can manage to do many things that they are not able to do sure. in um, in peacetime, but, you know, maybe this will be the incentive, the, you know, big enough incentive that we need to actually finally start to, you know, sort out some local production of, of things that we haven't bothered to produce locally because it was so easy to get them from. Sure. overseas and yeah um and energy be one and then a lot of the raw materials to make renewables as well would be another one i think and i do see steps in that direction at least from the u.s and um you know other countries will probably also implement some more and, and dan you, you saw the the latest elon Musk tweets are, are you following elon and all the latest comings and goings there uh i try to keep myself away from unhinged <laughs> tweets in general so I do not follow what? Elon Musk. I do hear through the grapevine and there's an article, but, uh, yeah, he's, I mean, his Twitter is getting him in trouble with the SEC uh, again. Yeah. He, as brilliant as he is, he seems to learn nothing, um, mm. from the times that he hurts his company through his social well, media Elon, use. Uh, but I, I, so I don't know what okay. you're referring to. So Elon Musk, uh, put out a tweet. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe it's, maybe it's a midnight crazy tweet, but he, what Elon Musk was saying is, we need to be drilling for oil in the United States, at least temporarily, that we can't all be driving electric vehicles tomorrow because we don't have an ability to make electric vehicles that fast and we don't have the grid to support it. So in the short term, we're going to have to drill, do fracking. Yeah, I think that's fair. And Rosemary seems very concerned about that. I'm more concerned about the war, <clears throat> the war effort in Ukraine and how that's going. And maybe we, we suffer a little bit because we have a little higher emissions, but... <clears throat> I think we're heading in the right direction. I'm with you guys, and I guess I'm with Elon too, <laughs> and I've seen some other people, Michael Liebreich, for example, is one, who've said similar things on Twitter, which I am increasingly just hating Twitter as a place to hang out. So, <laughs> um, it's the worst. Everyone yeah, should leave Twitter. It's the worst. And if you, immediately. Like, several people that leave I Immediately. I follow people elsewhere, like Michael Ebrock is a good example where, you know, I, I follow his podcast, I follow him on LinkedIn, it's all reasonable, nuanced stuff, agree with at least 80% of what he's saying. And then on Twitter, it's like, oh, this guy is such a... <laughs> 
such a jerk, you know, like, it's just horrible. I can't agree with anything he says there. It, I don't know. It's just this, it brings out like, um, you know, inflammatory kind of ways of saying things and just being obnoxious to people. It's so uncool to say it, but I just really like the vibe on LinkedIn a lot more than I like the vibe on, on Twitter. You can talk about ideas more, um, more so than you're talking about people. But I did notice that, you know, anybody who says, yes, we need to do the energy transition as fast as we can. But in the meantime, you know, you can't go from zero to a hundred overnight. You have to ramp up. And in the meantime, the fastest thing, the fastest way to get off, you know, to stop supporting Russia via fossil fuel um, imports from there is to actually, you know, uh, increase <laughs> fossil fuel production or imports from, from other places. That just hammered, hammered, hammered by, um, you know, the kind of people who I'm usually siding with on environmental issues. So I, I think that there is this problem with, um, a lot of climate change commentators, um, who <laughs> they tend to be all or nothing, you know, it's like any fossil fuel <laughs> is, is bad, but I kind of see if we, you know, try and switch overnight to renewables before we have it in place. There's going to be huge disruption and shocks and you're going to get everybody offside. I just, I'm so excited to finally, after 20 years in the industry, see public support with us, you know, the economics on our side, um, every, everything. We've got all the, the tailwinds in our favor for the very fast energy transition for the first time ever. And I just, I, I don't want to ruin that. You you're know? in it though, but I think Rosemary, this is actually going to accelerate it uh, because I, I agree with you that we, we're going to have to burn a little more oil in the short term. But when countries are at war or in war-like conditions, they will do amazing things. And the United States has proven it has been able to do that numerous times. Europe has done the same thing. So we're on the precipice of a very unique adventure, and we're, it's going to be an interesting time to live. <laughs> and regardless of what is happening on Twitter, and Dan, you're probably right, we should all probably get off Twitter. Uh, at least, at least, um, saner, saner minds are thinking alike. And I do see growth. But I don't even see it as we need to burn more oil now. It's that we have to change the source of the oil that we're currently burning. Mm. We continue to trans transition away from it as soon as we can build wind turbines and build transmission right. lines and improve the insulation in our homes and It'll yeah, install heat pumps. You know, all those things will happen faster yes. even because, you know, there's added incentive and because the cost of fossil fuels has gone up. Um, but we just have to, the, the fossil fuels that we do continue to need, we have to get them somewhere, somewhere else. I don't see anybody really suggesting that we need to increase the amount of fossil fuels that we're using. It's just we have to increase the amount that we're producing um, so that we <laughs> import less. That's my interpretation. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. The industry, the renewable industry is really stepped up and it's it's time. Right? We're in, in a very unique time. This is sort of like our uh, wartime effort to get the world cleaner. That's good. Well, and you wonder if this is going to lead the world into like a pseudo like isolationism, like, you know, yes. we don't want to be dependent on, you know, the supply chain's already been a mess. And now <laughs> as the U.S., like the idea of drilling for oil in our backyard sounds good, almost like preparing your own bomb shelter. Like, I want to make sure I have every food I could possibly need in case things get crazy again. Right. Yeah. So you might start looking at the map and be like, OK. We get this from this country who's not too big and doesn't have a very big military and this country and this country and this country. Maybe we need to start making all those things here at home, but that's also probably going to be unrealistic mm. and unfeasible. Maybe. And it also might only last a short 
period of time. I don't know. It, it's weird because obviously you, at times like this, you want to be able to get everything at home. Yeah. Uh, but then again, that's not the way the world is because the, the composition of the Earth's crust is different depending <laughs> on where you are, right? You can't just make up titanium deposits in the U.S. Right. if they're not here, right? There's a lot in Russia. There, there are, there, Alan? Most of the titanium deposits are in Russia. And it, we're still going to have that problem, that sourcing problem. But I think you'll find an alliance of countries like the United States and Australia and most of Europe where they're going to figure out alternative plans. You know, the, the one interesting country in, in all this um, energy crisis bit, which is France. France is sitting there sweet and pretty. And with their nuclear generators producing most of like 70% of electricity in the country, they're not worried about Russian oil at the moment, not at all. And it's in these weird times where different approaches to energy and to supply chains play out, right? And you don't know who the winners and losers are. It, it could have been Germany, right? It could totally could have been Germany. It doesn't look like it's going to be Germany, unfortunately. But it, it leads us in a different direction. So we're looking at France, and Rosemary had a great YouTube video come out about nuclear energy, which I have to promote because it, I thought it was so good, um, talking about, you know, is smaller nuclear reactors in our future? Uh, in the U.S., I think in particular. I think the answer is yes. I think it is. And, and France is, is sort of the model for that. I know they're struggling right now building new reactors and whatnot. But uh, that's temporary. So... You know, Rosemary has a sort of a quasi-philosophical objection to nuclear, which I completely understand. But I think you're going to see. No, oh, don't. Oh, as we can, it's outlawed <laughs> in Australia. It is not outlawed in America. I assume there's like a not a great uh, nuclear future for Australia at the moment. But it's going to change. It's outlawed in Australia. It's true. I don't. I don't care if it is or isn't. We don't need it in Australia. That's that's my opposition mm. to it. It will never be the cheapest fuel, um, clean energy source in Australia. It will certainly not be the fastest. You know, it, it, you don't just go from zero nuclear industry to you know it being a major contributor overnight. That takes that takes a while to build that up. So um, it's a portfolio. Yeah, I, I don't like it for Australia for for economics. Energy's a portfolio, right? We've been told energy's a portfolio. You need a little bit of everything to make sure you don't run out of any of them. I think nuclear's. You don't need a little bit of everything. Do you need do you need wave energy? Do you need space-based solar power? Do you Yeah, need, well we do. You know, like there's a lot of uh piezoelectric roadways. You, you know, like there's a lot of ways you can make energy. You don't you you need a, a variety that, right. of good technologies that kangaroos <laughs> on hamster wheels. Exactly. You know? That's feasible. A huge energy source. <laughs> but you know, maybe not economically feasible. Well, no, okay. So, there, I mean, there's, there's, when we're talking about gigawatts of power, you, you'll sort of limit that down, right? You're, you're not, piezoelectric roadways are not going to produce gigawatts of electricity, but nuclear reactors will, wind will, <laughs> solar will, uh, oil will, right? And gas will, uh, hydro will. So, it, I mean, there, there is a subset in there of real things that, that could be done. And I, don't, don't you think that even in places like Australia, which has outlawed nuclear, we'll start looking at it. Because I think the answer is yes. It may not, it's not today. I'm not saying tomorrow Australia is going to change a lot. I do not see that at all. But if other countries are successful, it'll take some of the pressure off. And if they can reduce the cost of it. It might happen eventually if, if you know, in um, 2100 when we've got nuclear fusion. We're and living it's just on so, Mars so in 2100. We might, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, we we might be pulling down solar farms there to reclaim the land. We're never going to live on Mars. Never. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out eventually, but I I think nuclear is an important part, and maybe I would maybe even go so far as to say it's a necessary part of the whole world's energy transition. There we go. But it doesn't mean every country is going to need it, and Australia is like top of the list of countries that that don't need. Nuclear. Okay. Um, you know, we have such an easy, easy transition here, way more wind and solar and land than we need. Not very challenging seasonal, um, energy use patterns. Um, you know, like it's, it, we don't, we don't need to do the hard stuff here. Um, yeah. Whereas in the US, I mean, US actually, your energy transition is, is amongst the easiest too. You could probably do without nuclear. If it gets cheap, then you'll use it. That's, that's what I think. Um, and then other countries like Northern Europe, um, and probably, I don't know, maybe Canada as well, you know, countries where they've just got a a little bit more of a seasonal (laughs) challenge. I think nuclear, you know, it'll be, it'll be a lot harder for them to do without it than if they include it in their, in their mix. Well, here's a question for either of you. Now, you know, we've lived the last 50 years in a pretty peaceful era, you know, globally. Uh, do we need to now start designing our energy systems for war? You know, imagine you live in the desert and you have one water tank. Like you're, you've, you know, you catch, you collect some, some rain or you do whatever. You have one water system. If someone wants to come, ransack your home and they take that offline, that's maybe the end of you, right? If you have one or two big nuclear reactors that provide a huge amount of power for a relatively small country that borders lots of other countries, are you really fragile in the prospect of war in the next 20 to 30 years? You know, like the United States is in a rare situation where we have a huge moat of water. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to get to the U S if you want to attack us and invade us, you know, the, our military aside, but if you're a small country like France and you have a lot of nuclear power, are you really, really susceptible to just a couple of airstrikes that take out your nuclear reactors? I mean, is that something that people need to realistically start thinking about now that we've sort of had this spell broken, this, uh, peaceful era broken, realizing that, you know, I'm sure a lot of other countries with relatively small militaries are realizing we're, you know, this is a real, a real thing that could happen. Well, yeah, I think didn't Denmark just decide to increase its defense budget or NATO budget to 2% of its GDP, something like that. Uh, so and the answer to that is yes. I think there's a lot of European countries getting in a defensive military position, uh, in terms of arming themselves and there's talk of, of you know japan sounds like they're going to step up in some things and germany too and uh, the infrastructure for the power networks and the energy networks are going to be hardened also i think they're going to have ways of getting rerouting power like they sort of do already but you're right dan um it's gonna it's gonna be a difficult transition in the United States. Remember, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about electromagnetic pulses wiping out the entire U.S. electrical grid. Now, I don't think it's as susceptible now as it was, say, 10 years ago. But in these situations we where war percolates up to the top, uh, yeah, uh, you'll, see, you'll see changes in regula- regulations that are going to harden things up. I, I think the... And Rosemary, you can chime in here, but I think there's also a risk of 
uh, basically software attacks, right? Internet attacks, shutting down grids. We've already had it happen in the United States where they shut down pipelines. Uh, everybody's going to step up and really clean house in terms of its energy systems because you can't disconnect like the Northeast of America uh, from the electrical grid without being massive problems. And so you, you need to harden those systems. And Europe's going to do the same thing. But I, I do see, though, clearly that you're going to have energy independence. Everybody, every country will be talking about energy independence in the next month, Australia included, because you just can't have a significant part of your energy grid system dependent on another country that you may not be friendly with or, or plan not to be friendly with. It's, it's a huge problem. But does that make you even more fragile? Because then if you get attacked, now you don't have a inroad for other people to help you and get you the energy you need if you're, again, kind of isolated. I don't know, R Rosemary, where do you fall on, on all of this? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, resilience should always be a consideration whether you're in peacetime or you're contemplating wartime. Uh, you know, an attack is not the only way that your you know energy system can go down. I mean, there have been cyber attacks happening um, a bit recently, including maybe by Russia, I think some people are saying. Um, and... There's also, I mean, there's other things in, in California and in Australia, there's all these bushfires that, you know, can cause uh, communities to get cut off. Um, as always, you know, whenever there's a, a storm, uh, there's power lines that blow, blow down. And, um, if that was the only, <laughs> only line in or, or out, then that, you know, will put people into blackouts. Um, and distributed energy should be a way to in improve resilience. If we, we do it right, you have, you know, grids that are op able to operate in island mode. So you probably still keep everything connected, but they can operate. In, in isolation and you know like if you have a lot of houses with rooftop solar then that can and some you know small batteries community batteries or household batteries that can really keep things going for a long time especially if people are you know reducing their their demand for a while so i think that that's going to be important and then make sure that it's not all controlled by <laughs> one satellite connection so that you know <laughs> you you take down one one satellite link and suddenly your whole country's uh you know got no internet or electricity mm. It's not, yeah, it's, you don't have to know what the threat is to know that you can't have single points of failure for a really critical system like, like electricity grids. So, um, I think that's always been important and people maybe haven't given it as much attention as they should have. And I'm sure they will now because, yeah, now the threat is, you know, like obvious to everyone. Well, I hate to bring this back to Elon Musk, but let's bring it back to Elon Musk. I think he just solved two of those problems. Right. The Internet problem with their Starlink. Yeah. And right. They, they've been sending terminals over to the Ukraine and they've been uh, lowering the power needed to operate those those ground stations. Uh, that makes the Internet possible. It'd be very difficult to take out Starlink because there's so many satellites. And the second is uh, Musk doing all those, those solar grid and the batteries, the Tesla wall battery thing. Uh, so, Dan, you could be your own independent power station i guess i mean you could you know dan's power station could be powering the neighborhood if 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 the uh you know your state was without power you could actually be powering your home plus a couple of others uh like rosemary said so it, it, you become interconnected weirdly weirdly such and i haven't thought of it that way but musk may have connected us and made us somewhat resilient to cyber attacks and 
really hard war attacks. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh, I, I, I haven't thought of it before, but I think he did it. Well, let's jump back to, to EVs for a moment because let's talk about some of the implications for speeding up you know, the transition away from fossil fuels. Obviously, right now, mm-hmm. everyone's like, hey, gas is really expensive. Give me an electric car. <laughs> Sign me up. I'm ready. Like, I'm you know, no more qualms. But everyone else is like, hey, okay, we'll put you on the wait list. So how's 2025 for you? Does that sound good? We'll get you a Tesla. We'll get you a, a new GM platform EV. Um, I mean, are we going to see people able to transition out or are municipalities going to be able to transition out of, you know, their current energy, energy sources anytime soon? Or is this kind of one of those things where, hey, we're everyone's ready to work at home, but like Zoom has limited capacity. So you can't all do You got to stay in the office, right? Like the pandemic changed the way we worked, but and this could seemingly change the way we use energy. But it doesn't seem like we have the capacity to do that. Rosemary, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's a transition. It's not like a, you don't just jump off a cliff and then you, you know, jump off the cliff of fossil fuels into the, you know. Well, you don't need energy if you jump well, off a cliff. Yeah, no. Unless yeah. you have a parachute, a parachute a inverter. Energy that there. Creates, Actually, I do have yeah. a live stream coming up on uh, airborne wind power. So that hey, is, that is all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, it's a transition. I think most of us in the industry have been frustrated by how slow it's been going. I mean, certainly I'm less frustrated now than I was, yeah, 15 years ago when it felt like we we're going nowhere. Um, we've got some, some movement now, but things could go much faster if we could sort out, you know, some of the regulatory issues, building out transmission faster. Um, and you, you know, a few, few other things, especially getting the smart, smart grid working. And I think that this might be the incentive that we need to these. Problems don't need to take a long time to solve, you know, some of them. Um, you know, transmission as one example. People don't like power lines um, running through their, their property, but, you know, it solves a big problem. And I think that, you know, with a little bit, <laughs> a little bit uh, more reason why you can see like the urgency of doing it, I think some of these projects should be able to go a lot faster. And I know in Europe, they're really just crying out to get rid of some bureaucracy so that they can, um, you know, roll projects out faster. Um, these are not real obstacles, you know, they're, um, politically imposed obstacles for the most part. And I think that yeah, a sense of urgency is what's been missing. So we'll get that now. And I, I think that we'll go a lot faster than we have been. But that said, yeah, it's still not an overnight thing and things will happen. You know, the, there's a there's a ramp rate. And I think we need to do everything at, at once. You need to, yeah, you need to install heat pumps, but you can't only install heat pumps because you need the, you know, upgrade the transmission so that you can have a lot more electricity. You need to increase insulation. Plus, no one knows how heat pumps work. So are people Everyone really knows because I haven't checked out my video wait, on wait. it in between the, the episodes since we last talked about Man, it. Man, it's, it's shameless. It's shameless YouTube plug week here on Uptime. Yeah. Um, we need, we need to do all that. You need to improve insulation in homes. We need to get EVs, do, do it all at the maximum rate that we can. And that will give us the fastest solution. But yeah, I get a bit, bit tired of people saying, Oh, we can't do this overnight. So it's not a solution. I mean, <laughs> what solution, big solution to a big world problem ever happened overnight? You know, you, you, you do it as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get there as, as fast as you can. Spoken like a true engineer. Well, you wonder what the world is going to do as obviously we have no idea how the Russia-Ukraine conflict is going to progress. 
And I mean, any of it, right? It's anyone's guess. Uh, but you also just wonder what are they going to do with all that oil, right? It's just going to, I mean, they sell a hundred million dollars worth of oil a day in Russia and it's going to China. Are, are people, are countries going to acquiesce just in a couple of months, just quietly, just quietly start buying it again? I mean, no. Alan, where do you see that no. going? I mean, they're going to have this gigantic stockpile. Their economy is going to be in, in collapse, obviously. Yeah. But where do you see that going? I, Russia is already working on deals with China. I think that's where the oil will go and numerous others. But China is the big marketplace. That's where Russia has to go. They're going to have to, instead of facing westward, face east and start negotiating deals with China. The problem with that, if you're Russian, is that China wields a lot of weight and they can also cut you off. So if China can make it hurt, so they're probably gonna be discounting oil to get it into China, which is then gonna hurt Russia economy even more. And so it's like a cyclical bad spot that Russia has put itself in. I, I think I basically understand what, what Russia's concern is with the Ukraine. But because we're all interconnected right now, unloading oil will be very difficult to do. It isn't like in the 1980s when, or even in the 2000s when like Venezuela was trying to smuggle in oil places and we were trying to, the U.S. was trying to stop that from happening. It's really hard to sneak things around in the world anymore because there's so many satellites, everybody's watching all the time. It's hard to do that. And the same thing like North Korea was trying to do the same thing. And U.S. was all over watching all of that. So Russia's cornered. And I think that's why everybody is a little concerned. Because if Russia's cornered, they have nuclear weapons. And it's not like they wouldn't use them if it got desperate enough. And this is where sort of the, the diplomacy part comes in and how much stress you want to put on Russia versus is there an out? Where's the out? And how are we going to manage the out? And what does that look like? But, but you, in the process of all this happening, you may upset so many European nations that they won't deal with Russia for the next 20, 30 years. I think that's very likely. So... You know, what does a world look like, Dan? You know, you and I have kind of lived in, in Rosemary, too. I don't want to be out of this, Rosemary. I've lived in a very quasi-stable time. I'm the youngest. I've lived through the least of any of you, of us three. <laughs> but but maybe, yeah, my maturity <laughs> is shining through. I'm, I'm, I'm 48 in maturity years. Yeah, yeah appreciate so, you, you know, I, I was born in sort of a Vietnam era, and I remember all that. And you know, obviously, the Gulf Wars and all those things happened in the 90s. Uh, live through that. Those are really bad times. This seems worse because we've never had a real fight in European territory. That's outside the bounds. And that the whole time with Ronald Reagan and all the things that were happening in the 1980s was about preventing nuclear war with, with the Soviet Union. And we thought we were out of it in 1991 or 92. We thought we had moved on since then. And now we're kind of back in that mode again. It's it's a different world. It's a different world. And unless you have lived through, through it, you just don't know. Well, there's certainly going to be positives that come from this. Obviously, it's a terrible thing that's going on. But just like if you, you live on a street where a bunch of cars get broken into, <laughs> what happens? Everyone starts right. being better about not leaving valuables out. You know, like this is what happens in all sorts of scenarios. Unfortunately, bad things have to happen to someone first. And in this case, it's Ukraine. 
uh, for everyone else to start, like we've already said, bolstering their military, making, I mean, how many countries have already are either trying to join mm-hmm. the EU or NATO? I mean, there's a lot of other countries who realize we're not that different than, than Ukraine and we don't have the military to fight a country like Russia. So it's going to be a positive for them that unfortunately Ukraine was attacked first, that they now have a chance to do things to make sure they're not the next target. And we probably have the same net positive in reinforcing our grids and realizing that, hey, Russia is going to be angry at everyone. So they're probably going to go on a crazy offensive on cybersecurity. So everyone right now is saying, okay, how can we prevent and harden every single system that we have to because we could be in this fight for 20 more years? And it's I mean, very likely that cybersecurity is going to be a a nightmare (laughs) for the next long term, because even if Russia's like, hey, we're going to back out of Ukraine, they're still going to oh, sure. come after yeah, everybody. Absolutely. Right. Because cybersecurity is, is is seemingly much more innocuous, even though it's not, than actually throwing um, munitions into someone's backyard. Uh, a cyber attack could be billions of dollars of or hundreds of billions of dollars if done right. So Russia can hurt the United States. Russia can hurt Europe. Russia can hurt Australia. Russia can hurt Japan if they chose to. And that's the scary part, right? And I, Dan, I think you highlighted a really good point that there's going to be a lot of changes happening in a lot of countries to harden systems up and to better prepare for what may be somewhat inevitable or what a future could look like to prevent that bad future from occurring. And it's going to change... The discussion we were having the other day was mindsets have to change. You know, you you have to prioritize things. This is sort of the engineering part that comes in is, okay, what comes first, right? We need to prioritize where we're going here because there's only so many resources. What are you going to do first? You're going to harden the electrical grid. You're going to go to renewables. You're going to drill more. Are you going to make electric vehicles or, you know, are you going to get the cybersecurity thing really, really figured out? Are we going to talk... Uh, Web 3.0, and we're all going to move over to uh, sort of Bitcoinish sort of currencies. Oh, all those things are still wide open right now. We need to figure out, have a plan of attack. And, and right now, the United States is still, if you watch Twitter, <laughs> if you look at Twitter, right now it's just chaos. Everybody's going in every direction. There is no plan. And that's bad, right? We should have had some sense of what this Russia-Ukraine thing, how it was going to play out. And we don't. And we don't. And that's the worrisome part. It's going to, I think Rosemary's right. It's going to take a couple of years to get organized. And in that time frame, Dan, I think you're right. Cyber attacks are probably number one on Russia's list to hurt the United States. And they'll probably pull that trigger. I'm, it, it's, they have a little bit already. But if they really want to make it hurt, they haven't done that yet. It, but that may be yet to come. Well, and it also could be as part of a bigger plan to get people back dependent on oil. If you take a bunch of countries, other power sources yeah. offline, now they're really hurting. Then maybe they double back on their embargo for oil. Because if you know tons and tons of wind farms go off and 8% of your power goes offline in addition to you know the oil embargo, you might say, listen, you know, we, we want to keep this intact what we can't we we just we need russian oil now i mean that that seems like that could be a legitimate way to for them to sort of fight back against some of these sanctions is to go after other countries from a cybersecurity standpoint rosemary i mean do you think that's plausible 
Yeah, I'm not much of a military strategist, so I, I I don't know if I've got a whole lot to add on that specifically. But I do know that in Europe they – I mean, I know there's not a lot of people alive now who literally remember the last world war, but they do kind of culturally remember it, especially in Germany in a way that we definitely don't in Australia and I don't think that you do in the US either. I mean, we didn't have the, the wars really in our countries, only, you know, the tiniest little bit. Um, and I know that in Germany, especially, they're like constantly on the lookout for, oh, you know, this, this reminds us of, you know, one of the first things that Hitler did. Um, and so I, I think that people are more wary of not repeating the mistakes that they did with, with Hitler, um, including, uh, you know, people were probably too, too careful to try to avoid war at all um, for the Second World War. Um, and I, I think that that will make them more cautious to repeat the mistake. So I would expect people to, you know, come down harder on, on Russia now than they did on Germany um, in the early days of, uh, of that whole conflict. Yeah. And I think just to make sure we're clear here, when, we, when we're speaking of Russia, I think there's a difference between the Putin government and the Russian population. I think the Russian population probably doesn't want to get in some long-term war. Uh, have we seen over the last 30 years when since the wall has fallen in, in the former Soviet Union and in Russia, Russia has been a lot more open and a lot more, uh, the people have been a lot more open uh, than what we would known in the 1970s. It's just a totally different world. And I, I, I I don't necessarily feel sorry, but I mean, I do feel some some angst for the people of Russia because they're caught in a really bad situation. They're going to be paying for their government's leadership for the next 20 years, probably. And that's not that's not what you want. You don't wish that on anybody. And you wish that the the leadership would realize the pinch they're going to be in. And it's not worth it because I think I think the Russian citizens deserve this at all. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube. Definitely check out Uptime Tech News. You can subscribe below to our weekly newsletter and podcast updates, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, where you've heard just countless <laughs> plugs for her incredible videos. She, <laughs> All kidding aside, she does do a great job. So definitely check her out uh, for everything renewable energy. We'll see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.